Today's reading is from Matthew. It's chapter 16, verses 21 to 28. And that's page 984 of the Church Bible. 984. It's titled, Jesus Predicts His Death. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So we're looking at part of Matthew's Gospel, and it's a really key part in Matthew's Gospel. It's sort of a turning point uh, in the gospel, so, um, so I'll pray, and then we'll we'll go and have a look at it and see what it says. So, so let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it stands true from the beginning to the end. And Father, we thank you that it is timeless. And Father, we thank you that it's cross-cultural. It has no boundaries on who it can touch the lives of and who it can affect. And Father, we thank you that as we open it today, Father, we pray that by your Spirit you'd open our hearts to hear from it and to understand more about you about your son the Lord Jesus and Father I pray that you would um, help us to become more and more like him and more in love with him and find more and more of our joy in him and who he is and what he's done Amen Amen. Okay, so Ian read to us um, a few verses from Matthew's Gospel and like I said it's quite a it's an important chunk in in Matthew's Gospel um, because I'm trying to think of which way around I am that way, okay, so if you think of Matthew's Gospel a bit like a W, or any of the Gospels a bit like a W, so you've got Jesus comes from heaven, he's born as a baby, and then he has like he spends a lot of time in Galilee, that's the sort of come down to earth, Galilee bit, and that's sort of mainly, it's, it's quite vague, so he comes down to earth, there's the sort of Galilee ministry there, and then there's the Mount of Transfiguration, so he sort of goes up and he's almost enshrined in his glory again, a bit like being back in heaven, then he comes back, then he has his ministry in Jerusalem, and he goes back up to heaven again after his death and resurrection, and then there's the ascension. So it's like, he's born as a baby, there's a transfiguration in the middle, and he ascended to heaven at the end. So the Gospels are sort of vaguely shaped like a W, if you can follow my, my logic. And what we're doing here is we're climbing just towards the middle peak of this Gospel, which may just, you may think, oh, that's only interesting if you think of it like a W. But what is happening here is, as soon as Jesus gets past the Mount of Transfiguration, which is the passage that follows this, He's heading straight for Jerusalem. And there's a lot of time spent in the Gospels, all three of them, talking about what happens in Jerusalem leading up to Jesus' death. And that is the most important part of the whole Gospel. But the thing is, Jesus knows what's coming. So he knows. So when he goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, 
coming down the mountain, effectively, he's walking all the way to the cross. And he knows that that's coming. So just keep that in mind as we, um, as we look through this passage. So if Jesus knows what's coming, if Jesus knows that in a few weeks, months, however long it takes him to get to the cross, how is he going to be feeling at that point? How is Jesus going to be feeling in his heart when he knows that the cross is coming? And he knows what it's going to mean. He knows exactly what's coming. How would he be feeling in his heart? And then I thought, actually, if you sort of think, he's probably, you know, it's not here yet. It's just a little bit of time away, but it's, you know, it's a bit scary. It's like, you know, really big exams, isn't it? You always feel a bit of nerves on the way up to them. Like your driving test, you're always a little bit worried on the way up until it actually happens. It's, you know, it's much bigger than that. Jesus is probably going to be thinking, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be good in the end, but it is really scary. And the temptation we see later on in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus prays, Father, if you can take this cup from me, well then, then do it, you know. But nevertheless, your will, not mine, be done. And I think with those sort of things rattling around our head, as soon as Jesus says to his disciples um, that he's going to die and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, then he'll be killed and on the third day he'll be raised to life. And then Peter, one of his disciples, sort of just sort of gathers him, you know, separates himself from the other disciples. He sort of pulls Jesus to one side. He sort of, you can imagine he like puts his arm around his shoulder and says, Jesus, this will never happen to you. Don't be silly. This is not going to happen to you. I'll be fine. You'll be all right. You know, Peter has just said in, earlier on in this chapter, in chapter 16, that he believes Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So he's thinking, this won't happen to you, Jesus. Don't you worry. Well, firstly, that is something a disciple should never do. It's, like, it's a very like, a massive social faux pas. If you were a disciple to a rabbi, like Jesus was, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, if you were a disciple... A disciple would never correct the rabbi. Now that, you know, that would be like, you'd be kicked out for that from the like, little group of disciples. You just didn't do that. So firstly, Peter makes a, a social error there. He corrects his rabbi. Something he should never do. But ultimately, I think, Peter doesn't really understand what's going on. We often see it with Peter in the Gospels, don't we? I always think of him as like, you know, two feet Pete, jump straight in, two feet first, and they always end up in his mouth. He always says the wrong thing. Um, and here he says, Jesus, don't worry, this will never happen to you. That'll, that'll never happen. That'll never happen. Well, Peter takes him aside, uh, Jesus takes Peter aside and he says, you know, get behind me, Satan. You've not got in your heart things of God, but the things of men. Which I think, you know, that's quite a massive, like, put down on us, isn't it? Get behind me, Satan, for one, to, like, somebody you've been training and nurturing. You know, if you wanted to crush somebody with one sentence, if you're Jesus, and that's Peter, you think you could crush him with one sentence with that. You've not got in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Well, firstly, I think Peter's got something slightly crossed in his mind. Firstly, there's, this, there's an idea in Judaism that's fairly prevalent that there'd be two messiahs, not just the one. They'd have two. And the idea was that you'd have one messiah who would... Um, come and be the suffering servant spoken of in Isaiah 52 and 53 and that would be the Messiah that came that suffered all those cruel things uh, and died and then they'd have a second Messiah who would be the one who'd come who'd conquer, would rule and reign and because in, in the Old Testament as the Jews read through they can see these two things very clearly you can see that there'll be a Messiah who will come and suffer and die and you can see that there'll be a Messiah who comes to rule and reign 
what they've not kind of seen is that these two things, if you look at them like that, they're very distinct. But if you look at them like that, they're one and the same. So they've not realised that this same person that's going to die and suffer is the one that's going to be raised back to life and is then going to rule and reign. So Peter, in his head, has these two messiahs going on and he doesn't want Jesus to be the, the, the messiah who like dies because that's not very nice for him. He thinks he's like the top disciple in the group and he wants his rabbi to be like the good messiah that will rule and reign so he can, he can help him and you know, be like his advisor or something like that. Forgetting that Jesus is God and knows everything. Anyway, so when Peter says to Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross. You know, this won't happen to you. What greater temptation could there be for Jesus to say, you know what, ultimately I don't, I don't really need to go to the cross because me and my father, we have a perfect relationship. I've not done anything wrong. Ultimately I could go back to heaven. I could you know, have a great time. The angels will worship us and it'll be wonderful. The food's brilliant. The music's amazing. There's never a dodgy string on a guitar. It's just fantastic. What greater temptation could there be for Jesus at this point to say, actually, yeah, I don't really have to go and suffer. And Jesus could think, you know what, stuff it, I'll go back to heaven. Have a great time. But if he did that, he knows full well that nobody, none of us, would be able to go there with him. Jesus knows that when Peter says, you don't have to die, you don't have to suffer, you don't have to go to the cross, Jesus knows that it's an enormous decision that he has to make. Unfortunately for you and me and for Peter, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, at that point of temptation. There's a massive temptation for Jesus to say, you know what, sack this. I've had a good, good couple of years. I may as well go and enjoy myself with my father. And, you know, I don't, wanna, I don't want it to be difficult. I don't want it to be difficult. But he says, no, get behind me, Satan. Don't tempt me. Don't, get, like, don't set me off track. Don't knock me off the course that I'm taking to go to the cross, even though he knows it's coming. Ultimately, Peter should really have known better. Peter, you'd think by now, he's heard Jesus say, I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised back to life. You know, it's all going to be all right in the end, but I am going to die and be raised back to life. He should have known better. When I was sort of working through this and looking at it, I was thinking, when we think Peter should have known better, and the amount of times we see Peter say something stupid, and he's going to go and do, say something stupid again in the next chapter, they go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus is like shown in his glory, and as Moses and Elijah, the first thing Peter says is, let's make some tents. You know, this would be a great plan, but that's not what he needs to do. Peter should have known better. But actually, when you look at it, you think, actually, shouldn't, shouldn't I know better most of the time? I definitely think I ought to. I mean, we know so much stuff, don't we? And I think, and as a church, a lot of the time, we say things and we do things, and we look back and think, actually, I, sh- I should have known better. I'm not, like, five. I shouldn't have done that. I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have done that. So it was quite interesting. We kind of we can kind of happily mock Peter for being a bit of a fool in the in the gospel. But actually, how often is it me that's the fool, or is it you that's the fool? Probably more often me than you. But look at you. So let's move on to the next bit. This is the bit that we want to sort of focus on this morning, where Jesus goes on and he starts to tell his disciples what discipleship means. So from verse 24, we'll read that again. He says, "Then Jesus said to his disciples." If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. 
What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Just briefly before we carry on. Verse 28, it's a great verse. People argue about it all the time. What does it mean? What's it talking about? Some people who have stood here will not taste death before they see Jesus coming in his Father's kingdom. There are lots of great theories about this. Any bit in the Bible that's a little bit tricky to understand. Hundreds of theories just spring up out of the woodwork and you've got to go, oh, there's a lot of weird things going off there. I think basically what he's saying is, you know, there's some people here, some of his disciples, they'll see me, Jesus, in all of his glory before they die. And three of them, Peter, James and John, in the next few verses after this chapter, go up the Mount of Transfiguration and they see Jesus in all of his glory with Moses and Elijah. And I think that's what he's talking about there. So that, that Jesus says, has been fulfilled almost straight away afterwards for his disciples. So like I say, that's not what we're looking at today. So we're looking here that, at this bit of, that Jesus spells out discipleship in a few simple words for his disciples. Jesus knows that he's on, going to be on the downslope towards Jerusalem from here on in. He's going to go to the Mount of Transfiguration, then he's heading to Jerusalem. He knows that the cross is coming, and it's, yeah, it's evident to him because of what he says here. He says, if you want to be a follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. Like, they don't know it, though. They don't know that Jesus is going to be killed on a cross. They don't know that this idea of immense torture is what's going to happen to Jesus. Basically, Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you want to really follow me, following me is a life of crucifixion. It's a life of repeatedly dying painfully. And that's not a brilliant invitation. If I say, would you like to come around for tea? It'll involve dying painfully every day. People would never, ever come around for tea. But Jesus says, if you want to come after me, if you want to be one of my disciples, you have to take up your cross and die to yourself every day. And he's not saying here, when you become a Christian, nail yourself to a cross and die. He's not saying, physically go out and kill yourself. Because that would be insane, because then... You know, Christianity would have got nowhere. But he's saying it's in a spiritual sense. Here Jesus calls his disciples to spiritually carry an instrument of torture with them every day. Because Jesus wants people to see his disciples as people who are different now than what they were. So if the disciples lived exactly the same after they'd met Jesus than before they met Jesus, what difference would Jesus have made in their life? Well, Probably not very much. But if once they've met him and they've changed, they're becoming more and more like him, they're going to be completely different people after they've met him to that they were before. So I think Jesus is saying, when you become a Christian, you take up your cross and you die to yourself. Because at that point, just before you're a Christian, that old way of life, that way that has nothing to do with God, it's, you know, if God's in there, it's probably a swear word, and that's about it. You have no reason to interact with God whatsoever. Jesus says, I want you to take that old life. I want you to crucify it. And I want you to be born again with a new life. One that you can go out, that you can live for God, that you can make mistakes and you can be forgiven for those mistakes, but you can go out and you can bring God glory. You can do amazing things for him. And that's what Jesus wants his disciples to do. 
He wants them to be so changed in their life as a Christian that their old life appears to be dead. Now, I don't know about you, if you've got any friends who've become Christians who were you know, really way off the rails beforehand and then you know, completely different afterwards. Um, I think it's amazing when you meet people like that and they have a great testimony that you all sort of think, oh, I wish my testimony was like that. But I sort of was brought up in a vaguely Christian home and that wasn't really an option for me. I'm always amazed when it does. I've got a friend from my last church who was like that and effectively he became a Christian because the girl that he was going out with, that he, you know, he did ridiculous things to try and woo. He sort of would, well, I won't tell you where he stole the flowers from, but he stole flowers and he'd leave one flower in a milk bottle outside the house every morning for months before she'd you know, really notice him. Um, he said, as before he was, before he thought, all the girls in the town would sleep with him. That was his sort of, that's what he thought about himself. So all the girls in the town would sleep with him. But this girl, she won't do it. Why is that? And he decided that that was it. He wanted to get this girl and that was going to be like his life's mission. He met this girl. She told him that she wasn't going to sleep with him because she loved Jesus. He loves Jesus and they're now married. And it's just amazing to think that a transformation happened. But that's, you know, that's an aside. So he had, he's got a great testimony. Um, yeah. He did once tell it and then insulted his mother-in-law's cooking during the process, which wasn't a brilliant idea. So anyway, go back to this passage. Jesus says also that there are two categories for things that go on in life. There are things of God and there are things of man. And ultimately, one is good and one is bad. Peter, when he rebukes Jesus, has in mind the things of man. He's sort of thinking of himself, not thinking of God. But then there's the things of God as well. So one of these things is selfish and conceited. That's when we just look out for ourselves. The other one is freeing and liberating and empowering. When we look to God and we accept his ways. And we see what God wants us to be like. And I think Jesus goes on to explain this in a really sort of interesting way. And... He says here, from uh, verse 26, he says, What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? And what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus isn't asking questions of his disciples, trying to get the answers from them. You know, the rhetorical question is saying, What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? No good whatsoever. Ultimately, we all live for something. We all worship something. We all desire something above all things, above all other things. And they really vary in their, you know, in their whatever it is. So everyone has their own God. Whether they're Christian or not Christian, everyone has a God in their life. Whether for some people it might be, it might be their children. For some people, the risk for like church ministers is their God might become their church. And they might sort of worship their church and they do anything for their church forgetting that actually we should be worshipping God and serving the church because we do that. Some people might worship money. Some people might worship their work. Some people might worship football teams. It's amazing to think that there are thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that will flock to football matches up and down the country um, these days, but very few people flock to church. Some people worship their family. Some people will worship their house and they'll have the perfect house. Some people worship... You know, gaining power over other people. One that sometimes people may worship actually being able to just help other people. Effectively, our God can be anything. And the problem is, we can only really all live for one ultimate goal. Because if it's an ultimate goal, there can only be one of them. But Jesus says, all these things, and a lot of them are good things, like our families, our friends, our, you know, all these things are good things, really. What Jesus wants from his disciples here and from us today is to say, actually, 
These things can't be the ultimate things. Money, wealth, power, family, whatever it is, cannot be the ultimate thing. Jesus says, I want you to take whatever it is that you value the most and swap it for me. Which is a massive ask. If, if you're somebody who like, thinks, you know, my, you know, I'd do anything for a bit more money. I'd do anything for a, just a bit better job. If that's going to be your aim, that's what your, like, your idol is. If you're dreaming about that. And Jesus says to you, actually, I want you to change that. I want to take that off you. And I want you to put me as your number one priority for everything. That's a massive ask that Jesus, that Jesus calls people to. So he says, what good will it be for a man if he, if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Ultimately, Jesus is the only person that can rescue his soul. He says, what good will it be? Uh, or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, there's nothing that a man can give in exchange for his soul. Only Jesus can save our souls. So he says, I want you to put me first. And those other things can come beneath me. And provided I'm the top priority, you can like what you want pretty much beneath me, provided they're good. But it's a massive ask. And that's a big challenge for us today. In a world where we see so many things that are really attractive and really appealing, and adverts just like pop out of the telly or the radio or on billboards all over the place, or a car drives like goes past and you think, oh, I'd quite like one of those. And then you sort of think, oh, how can I get one of those? Um, and you can't steal it because if you're a Christian, uh, theft is not allowed. But Jesus says, I have to be your top priority. If anything else is your top priority, you're chasing after um, yeah, a worthless idol, basically. Jesus says, none of these things you can give in return for your soul. So ultimately, we need Jesus as our top goal, our top priority. So let's see if we can pull a few things out of this passage to finish. Jesus says, firstly, that we need to get our priorities right. Whatever things we may love and desire and really like, he must be our top priority. But the difficult thing is, like, it's really easy to say that, in a way, but it's really difficult then for me to think, actually... What things do I really love in my life that I don't want to, to depose and put Jesus there instead of? And for, yeah, for all of us, actually as Christians, what things do we have to take down and say, actually maybe I am worshipping that and not Jesus? And I think the easiest way to do that is to think, actually where do I spend all my free time? What do I spend all that doing? Is it spent thinking about the things of God or is it spent chasing after other things? So firstly, I think Jesus calls us to pull down idols in our life and put him there instead. If we're not willing to let things go, those things aren't going to save us. Only Jesus can save us in the end. But it may sound a little bit on the sort of sycophantic scale for Jesus here saying, look, I want to be top priority in your life. But I think there's a reason that Jesus says that. I think the reason Jesus says that is because when when it came to it, when it came to the cross, Jesus didn't say, all right, you're on your own. I'm, I'm not going to bother with the cross. You know, I'm just going to go back to heaven and it'll all be fine because I love myself that much that I'm not going to go, go through all this punishment. Ultimately, when it came to the cross, Jesus picked it up. Jesus is calling his disciples here to pick up their cross and crucify their old life. When it came to the cross for Jesus, he picked up the cross and he went and died on it. And he didn't have an old life. He had a perfect, pure, blameless life. And the Romans, they took him, they whipped him, they beat him and they nailed him. His soul didn't actually need rescuing. 
He wasn't one of the people like we are that have shipwrecked our lives. He only had one God. He didn't have any home. He didn't have any money. And in the end of his life, he didn't even have any friends. They'd all scarpered and deserted him and denied him. When Jesus died, he died on the cross alone and he suffered the punishment of hell as he went through the torture. But the reason that Jesus suffered so much was so that our sins can be forgiven. As Jesus died on the cross, the sins that we've all committed actually deserve punishment and deserve the punishment of hell for eternity. Jesus says, you know what, I'll take those sins. I'll take every single one of them. And as Jesus goes to the cross as well, he doesn't curse and swear at the people that are doing it. He says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And he doesn't shout at them, he just takes it quietly. So then when Jesus says, I want you to put me as your number one priority, the reason Jesus does that is basically because he's put out us as his. Jesus went to the cross knowing that I'd make a mess of things, knowing that I'd you know, make this mistake and that mistake. But actually on the cross, Jesus thinks, because of me and because of us I'm going to take those sins I'm going to go to the cross I'm going to die I'm going to be beaten and punished so that those individual people that I know and that I love don't have to suffer forever there are some enormous swaps that go on when I was younger I was always being told off by my parents for swapping things at school it was just great fun but in the Bible there are some great swaps that go on and this is one that um, somebody once described as the great exchange As Jesus went to the cross, he takes my sin and as a swap that's really unfair, he gives me his purity and his righteousness and his goodness. And because of that, I get to be with Jesus forever. So just to close, which I know I said a few minutes ago, but we've waffled since then. If you get Jesus in the right place and you're called to take up your cross... I think there are three things that this means for us practically. The first one is if we take up our cross, it's an implement of torture that we can use to to crucify things. The first one is we have to take to the cross all the other things that we have as our own gods, whether it's money, you know, power, whatever it is. We have to take those to the cross and say, actually, Jesus, please forgive me for worshipping this instead of you. Secondly, we have to be willing to crucify the old person we can't allow ourselves to have like pet sins. It's one of those things that I find really awkward and don't know how to deal with. But sometimes people say, I've been a Christian for a bit, but and I know I should deal with it, but, but, but it's my sin. You know, they sort of walk it around on a lead and they, they say, I don't do anything else. I don't do this that I used to do, but, but I do still do this. But you know, I'll work on it one day maybe. They sort of have a pet sin that they keep with them. That's not an option, Jesus says. He says we have to go to the cross. We have to crucify all the things that we were before that were bad and live for him and thirdly the last one is probably the biggest challenge for us our cross is massive okay? they weren't just little like wear it around your neck type size crosses that they crucified people on they were enormous, they were like massive timbers and I found out doing a bit of research that they used to use them again and again and again and again so they would really have been pretty unpleasant there was you know, no kind of like sterilisation process and cleaning the nails before they use those again either. They were really unpleasant things and they were enormous. Because they used them again, they'd have to be pretty massive and pretty strong. And they'd been covered in the blood, sweat and tears of the poor victim that was there before. But they were enormous. Like house, you know, like roof timbers I imagine. Enormous ones. 
And I think if Jesus says to somebody, I want you to carry your cross, when Jesus carried his cross, everyone around him could see it. I think Jesus wants us to sort of metaphorically carry our cross in such a way that people who know us and people that don't can see that actually our life is really clearly being lived out for Jesus. If I was carrying a, like a big cross timber through Rotherham Town every day, people would think I was insane, but they'd know that I was doing something or they'd see it in me. How can I live in such a way that my life is that clearly lived out for Jesus in all that I'm doing? So there are my three challenges for you and for me. First one is, have we got any other gods that we worship instead of Jesus? And how can we get rid of those? Secondly, we have to put aside the things that we used to do and live for Jesus from now on. And last one is, the challenge to that and live boldly and clearly for Jesus day to day. So there we are. I'll pray briefly and then we'll sing our final song. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that he was pure and blameless and that he was perfect. And Father, thank you that on the cross he took away the sin of the world. And Father, thank you that his righteousness is available for us if we have faith and we put our trust in him. Father, thank you that Jesus has done all the work and it's nothing that, that we can do because we'd make a mistake or, or we'd boast about it. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be disciples of Jesus who do pick up our cross, who are willing to sacrifice the old man and live in the, in the new, live knowing Jesus in the power of his spirit. And Father, I pray that you'd help us also to uh, worship you in living our lives out for you, really faithfully and really as a good witness to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for the church as well. Father, as a whole church, we'd be a good witness for you too. Amen.